Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you'd like to support the show, you can go through go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to Patreon-only content like monthly QA podcasts, monthly blogs, and other perks like free attendance to the Theology in the Raw conference that just happened. It's too late now, but uh, yeah, all my Patreon supporters got a free virtual pass, half off in-person attendance. It was so awesome seeing several Patreon supporters at the conference. So if you'd like to join the community, patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Also, if you don't want to support the show financially, you can uh, advertise it. You can leave a review, um, promote it on your social media outlets and let people know about it if you find it helpful and interesting. My guest today is Daniel Wells. I have never met Daniel personally. We know each other on uh, Twitter primarily and also Facebook. And both of us have been sort of chatting online about... uh, how we have really enjoyed Netflix's Midnight Mass, which is the content of this conversation. There are this, there are spoilers all throughout this conversation. And also, this is a rated R horror <laughs> series. So what is a theologian and a pastor doing watching it? Well, we do talk all about that. It is morally and spiritually profound, this series. I am not recommending it because I don't know how all of you, um, um, how you watch films and movies and stuff. And some things are more sensitive for other people. Other things are fine, whatever. We all have a different way of watching films. So, um, yeah, we found it really provocative and it ignited a really good conversation about other things like deconstruction in the church today. So please welcome to the show, uh, the, for the first time, pastor Daniel, Dan, let me start over. (laughs) Please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only pastor Daniel Wells. All right, hey friends, I'm here with uh, Daniel Wells, and we are going to talk about Netflix's Midnight Mass. I'm really excited about this conversation. But first, Daniel, tell us a little bit about who you are, um, and then we'll jump into the show. Hey, Preston, thanks so much. Uh, big fan of the podcast. Uh, love your work, man. Love listening to this every week. Um, but yeah, I'm Daniel Wells. Uh, I'm a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, um, so in the PCA. Um, I'm a pastor in Cortland, New York. Cortland is like half an hour. It's right, right in the center of New York state. If you put a dot right in the center of New York state, you hit Cortland, New York, kind of close to Syracuse, Ithaca. That's where Cornell university is at in Ithaca. So, uh, we're there. Um, been here about five years, pastoring a church, uh, small town, kind of like, uh, Crockett Island and Midnight Mass. So <laughs> kind of know those that a small town. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have a lovely wife, Ashley, uh, four amazing, still sinful, but amazing kids. Uh, but no, love my four kids, um, all the way from ages 10 to age two. Um, so yeah, I'm just glad to be here. Thanks for having me yeah. on. I figured after you did three hours talking about Dostoyevsky and Brothers K, uh, the rest of us common folk, you talk about some some easier yeah. artifacts from pop culture. So Midnight Mass is the best thing I came up with. Well, so, I, I, there you go. Yeah, I love talking pop culture, and I, I'm um, I'm learning to watch films and movies and stuff more philosophically, theologically. It hasn't always been that way. I've, I've got a good friend of mine, Mark Bubin, who is huge into just kind of understanding a the theology of pop culture. And I've read a few books on it and really enjoy it. Um, 
The last time I did something like this was uh, my buddy Luke Thompson and I discussed Joker, the movie. Uh, I think that was the last time we. Oh, really? Yeah, that was prof- that movie. I need to look that up. I would love to look. I, so funny story about the Joker movie. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe I should get fired as a pastor <laughs> for this. But when that movie came out, uh, what fall of 2019, um, that Thursday, that opening night, I was leading like uh, our community group, and um, we got done around seven. I looked at the guys in the group. I'm like. Hey, let's just go see the Joker. Let's go see uh, y'all, Queen Phoenix, nail this role. Yeah. So they're like, you know, Bible praying, go see the Joker, and um, yeah, a lot of fun doing that. So it's... I'm a very spiritual mind master. <laughs> uh, I I think I think we need more of that. I, mean, I think films can. Yeah, I do think there's a legitimate and provocative theology behind mm-hmm. all forms of art, but film in particular. So wh- why don't you get to get, give us a running start? Yeah. Wh- how do you how do you watch movies? I mean, some people, it's just raw entertainment. It's, you know, I'm tired. I want to check my mind at the door. I'm going to turn on Netflix. Um, and, and, you know, there's a place for that, I guess. But um, I'm guessing you have a more studious uh, lens when you watch films or, or <laughs> shows. Is that is that right? Studious. That's a great app. Uh, that makes you sound better than I am. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, probably the, my main motivation is just I'm a shallow person that just loves to just turn something on and just kind of veg out relax but um no but i do love um i know like some christians used to do like worldview analysis yeah. of films and how do you see a christian worldview underlying this and that. i think that's helpful but i just love good as you said just good arts mm-hmm. uh storytelling pacing um and but with a robust you know view of like common grace doesn't mm-hmm. mean to have like an explicit christian worldview or have a Christian director or Christian script or actors, but common grace, uh, we can find just uh, beautiful, just beautiful gems of, um, I, I think, I think the best, my favorite book on seeing common grace in the arts is um, a book called Echoes of Eden by a professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, his name is Jerem Bars. And he, his kind of theory is that um, just, the most enjoyable and the best of the arts, whether it's a play, a story, novel, um, actual artwork, movie, um, the best things that really resonate with our humanity in a good way, it does that because these are really echoes of our Edenic past as our humanity. And so he goes through like Jane Austen books and Harry Potter and you know Narnia, Middle Earth and Shakespeare and all these cool things. Um, Yes, even even Harry Potter, a lot of Christian themes huh. in it, which which I, that's why I love Harry Potter. So, um, so yeah, uh, I think yeah that notion of the echoes of Eden that we can yeah. resonate with in various works of art, um, yeah, that's really influenced me on how I approach movies yeah. and and um, TV shows and all that. Good, good. Well, let, so Midnight Mass um, was a show put up on Netflix, I believe. Was it last fall? Um, an eight series yeah, around Halloween, perfect time to put out like a creepy <laughs> TV series for Halloween. Yeah. So let, let me give a few, uh, a few caveats here. First of all, this, there will be spoilers here. So if you haven't seen it and don't want to be, have stuff given away, then turn off this podcast. Um, it's a, <laughs> yeah, one season, eight episodes, pretty sure they can't have a second season the way, well, the way it ended. Um, who knows, you know, um, it is the genre is horror. Um, and I I would say I'm not a huge horror fan. Um, this one, so I don't, I can't compare it to a ton, but this one seemed kind of horror light. Like I, I don't, 
the first three episodes could almost, if that's all it was, the the horror element, it was thriller. And there's some, you know, kind of scary a little bit, but not jump out and, you know, make you crap your pants kind of scary. It was just kind of like thought, like mm-hmm. thought provoking. But then, yeah, episode four and onward, you get into some more, you know, explicit demonic um, vampire horror kind of <laughs> stuff, you know, going on. And there's some that's- scenes that are like, yeah, this isn't for everybody. So, you know, people ask me, do you recommend this show? And I'm like, I, I don't ever like to recommend show. who are you and what are your what's your way you know like I, I just can't blanketly recommend anything my wife would never watch this i i haven't let my kids watch it yet they probably Same won't my wife just wants a good rom-com that's all yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> or, and, or the office or something yeah yeah, yeah. so there are, there's some caveats there i i'm not i'm not recommending this at the same time uh you and i both agree that it it is a very um religiously provocative series in a way that you know and that's that's true of several films they can be religiously morally provocative this one was i think in a class of its own i can't quite i don't people said why i'm like i don't know if i could even tell you why um they it's it's morally complex. It's spiritually complex. It's there's no nice and easy boxes to put people in. Um, the 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 priest in in general is is such a complex figure. It's hard to make hard to know what to do with them. And then you have this dialogue sort of the center between the atheist and the kind of nominal spiritual person who are you know they're they're kind of not quite dating yet. But yeah. Yeah, I think right that right that. Yeah. Those two speeches yeah. on the afterlife, they're really lengthy. They're kind of placed in the center. That seems to be really important for for kind of the director kind of showing his hand a little bit. These kind of two different – one's more of a nihilistic worldview. One's more of a kind of a, I guess, typical kind of spiritual. Everything will work out in the end. We're going to live happily ever after. Um I thought that I, I don't know. And I, maybe we shouldn't start there, but I thought that 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 was a significant part of the show. But I, I would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, what what is a, about Midnight Mass that has yeah. provoked you? That you know, you reached out to me several times on Twitter, like we need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, sorry to annoy you on Twitter. By the way, uh, received my <laughs> confession, Padre, uh, for annoying you on Twitter. Anyway, but yeah, you know, when I first watched this, um, my desire after I watched it was wow. If I could like do a small group with people in my town um, who are what I call de-churched, right? We talk about people who are not uh, followers of Jesus. You know, we talk about different categories. You may have like seekers. You may have just the pure like unchurched, just not really any experience with organized religion at all. But you have like de-churched folks, and sometimes we now use the word deconstruction. Um, Folks are a little more adamant about it, call themselves like maybe ex-evangelical, and they go in a certain direction. But I, I know a lot of de-church folks in my town, because actually uh, central to Western New York reminds me a lot of Crockett Island, the, the, the location in the show, mm-hmm. where uh, there's actually a Wikipedia article about this, where central and Western New York, so if like Syracuse over to Buffalo, were called the Burnt Over District. And um, mm-hmm. basically after the history of revivalism from the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney, in the 1800s, um, after a while, all that revivalism and kind of pent up religious emotionalism, but then maybe people seeing hypocrisy in the church and things like that. Uh, our this part of the country in New York is just hard soil to do gospel ministry, and 
uh, people may believe in God, people may vote straight ticket Republican or whatever, but the church is just that's, that's, people are not a fan of the church around here. So it's actually, uh, and that's, that for that reason, a lot of cults sprung up in this part of New York. Um, hmm. So that's why Joseph Smith was born just south of Rochester, New York. Hmm. Um, who's the guy who started Mormonism and things like that. So yeah, so um, this part of the country, very unique, very hard place um, to do ministry. Uh, uh, a mega church by anywhere else in the country is like 2,000 people. You get like 400 folks, that's a mega church up here, okay? Mm. So that's just kind of where we're at uh, in our part of the country. So a lot of de-church folks, folks that have, um, they may like God, but a low view of the church. And I think this show, if I didn't have four kids where I have to like basically be at home every night and help my wife put four kids to bed and console my wife after a tough day, because she's a stay-at-home mom, so I just got to kind of be her therapist and just listen to her how the day went. And she's got to listen to me about how ministry went that day, so... My evenings are just spent in this season of life, but if I had open evenings, I would love to ha- get a small group of folks that are kind of de-churched and watch this series and just have some really raw, helpful discussions about their experiences with the church. I think there's a lot, mm-hmm. um, and as I have coffee with with you know de-churched folks and whatnot, a lot of those stories and experiences I've heard really resonates with the themes of this show. What what um, yeah if you if you could imagine yeah. that that scenario getting a bunch of de-churched people to watch it what kinds of discussions do you think would spring up from yeah. this so um, I think maybe I, I think you hit it, you hit it earlier like you start talking about Riley and Aaron I think the best way to talk about the show is not like walk through the plot of the seven episodes but really the characters are really significant and are and really. I think people will look at these characters and they'll say, yeah, I know someone like Riley or I'm a Riley. Cause I think Mike Flanagan, the the director of the show, um, who's directed a lot of other horror movies, like mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the haunting and Gerald's game and things like that. Uh, I think he grew up Catholic on a small um, Island in maybe Massachusetts or I don't know where, um, but he grew up Catholic and he's basically a de church individual. And so I think he sort of makes Riley, his avatar in the show, someone yeah. who grew up with a really strong adamant faith, but now because of trauma, mm-hmm. um, I think trauma is a big thing for this show. And I think it's helpful for even a lot of Christians to realize how trauma affects people's spiritual journeys. Well, that's uh, how it starts. That's, that's the beginning of the show. That's gotta yeah. be significant. Right? Obviously Riley has his alcoholism and, you know, the child dies because of him. And, you know, at the very beginning of the show, um, I'll try to censor the, the language of the first episode there. But uh, when he's sitting on the side of the road, they realize this young woman is killed because of him being a drunk driver. And the EMT or the cop comes over and says, um, how come God takes away the kids, but lets the lets the drunkards walk away with just a few scratches? And that sticks with him mm-hmm. in his four years in prison. He comes out of that. You know, a lot of people find God when they're in prison. He like lost his faith in prison. Right. Um, comes back to the island, his upbringing, and he's yeah he's nihilist or naturalist. But he's just like, uh, if this God's true, this is a cruel God. I don't want to have anything to do with this God. Um, so that's where Riley's at, and I feel like that's kind of Mike Flanagan's avatar. He grew up okay. in the church, but then trauma and just um, even seeing hypocrisy from believers um, kind of chases them away from it all. Um, and so I think that's. I think that overlaps a lot of people's experience. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Then Aaron Green, kind of a you know counterpart to Riley, becomes a love interest later. 
she grew she didn't grow up with much faith she went to that church that saint patrick's church but um she had an abusive mother uh, a mother who would maybe go to mass and say the rosary but she would you know smack her or you know verbally berate her and all those things uh she gives this emotional talk to riley i think in the fourth episode about um the clipped wings um mm-hmm. monologue that she gives um mm. and so she ends up kind of coming back to faith a little bit. So it's almost like they have some similar paths mm-hmm. with trauma, but they kind of go in some different directions, but they are kind of parallel in some ways. Um, so I think those are just two interesting characters. They, As you say, they have some of the best monologues and dialogues in the show. And for a horror-themed show or movie, yeah. um, beautiful, amazing dialogues and yeah. monologues. Even if I don't agree with all the theology behind it all, like it's just beautifully written. Yeah, and you don't see that in a lot of horror, you know, flicks or whatever. Yeah. Um. So you so as you say, even if horror is not your yeah. favorite genre, this is not a jump scare horror thing. I mean, there's no. some graphics, not jump scare, but I think if you love good writing, if you love deep monologue and gets into theology and all that, and just our humanity in this world, mm-hmm. I think a person like that will love to watch this show. Yeah. Um, as beautiful monologue and dialogue. But yeah, I think starting with Riley and Aaron is important. Um, I think a lot of their stories overlap with some of the experiences of those who've left the church and have some trauma and baggage from that. I I like, so let's talk about a couple of the characters. First of all, and and I, I, I'm, I'm terrible with names. So you fill me in the names, but the, (laughs) the the super judgmental nun, what's her name? Um, Oh, Bev's it Bev Bev, Keen. Bless me. Keen. Beverly Keen. Her. She's like the Dana Carvey church lady. Oh my word. She plays the best judgy judgy but not unlike the church lady she's very smart and she rhetorically you can see how people can wield judgmental power over people through rhetoric she is not stupid i would not want to go toe-to-toe her with her in an argument even though what she's spouting off is nonsense and horrible (coughs) she's so rhetorically shrewd you can see where people can for her, she represents this kind of like brand of religion where you do have a figure like her that can wield power and gain a following, you know, is is, is obnoxious as a, of a you're like, you wouldn't want to be around her for more than five seconds. And yet she has kind of a loyal following yeah. and, and can be really intimidating. So um, her her role is really interesting, especially for, I would imagine, D church people who are like, yes, that's she is who I grew yeah. up with, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but after, I don't go to church anymore. Is because yes. of Bev Keen. Yeah. But you know, obviously yeah, the most Samantha Sloyan is the actress who plays her. She does an amazing job. She's that so actress good. nailed it. You're totally <laughs> right. Just nailed that character. Great she does job. it so well that if I saw her on the street, I'd be a little bit like, Ugh. like, wait, no, she's just an actress. <laughs> she's gonna come to your conference uh, oh, in a week. She's sitting in the like, back. Oh my gosh. Oh my word. Here? But so the we can and we can talk about her more. But the priest obviously is the most interesting. Yeah complex characters you're you love him you're disturbed by him you he he his sermons are profound i want to know who the story writer was like yeah who wrote those sermons could they write my sermons for me i know (laughs) there's more scripture in this series than any other series i've ever and and obscure scripture like verses from revelation and not not just a stereotypical like famous psalms but like there's these obscure scriptures that are integrated into things and in their accurate context. I'm like, this is, they must've had some kind of de-church theologian or something. 
or somebody. Or again, who grew up in the church and grew up in a Catholic church, he probably knows a lot of Bible and scripture. Okay. Um, actually, but to me, that's a huge theme of the show. And I think this would be a great thing to talk about with people who grew up in the church, but don't want anything to do with it anymore is that lots of scripture in the show, but wow, how it's even in a slight small way, they get twisted yeah. for evil purposes. And um, Paul Hill or Monsignor Pruitt, just but spoiler, same guy, just so you know, uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> to spoil that. If you're listening to this. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, but Pruitt, you know, he eventually, as he just goes more to this kind of cultic worship of what he thinks is the angel, but really a demon. And by the way, just the scripture that comes to mind is like Second Corinthians yeah. eleven. Um, Satan appears as, as an angel of light. Even this faithful Catholic priest mistakes a vampire for an you know mistakes a vampire for an angel, right? So pretty amazing. Um, but you know, he eventually takes the the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, and it's not about the Lord's Supper. It's now about this vampire's blood, and that's the blood of the new covenant, and so he twists that. Um, Bev Keen obviously will just spout off scripture uh, one after the other. And um, this is God's. So I think it's episode four and five is she, where she really makes that turn where she uses scripture, mm-hmm. kind of the, start this cult following. We're in the last days and, you know, quoting Revelation and things like that. And um, even when after they realize that uh, Paul Hill or Monsignor Pruitt has killed Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, he murdered someone. She, in, uh, I think it's the mayor. Is it Wade? I think Wade. Um, it's Lisa's father. I forget that his name, but oh, I think yeah. it's Wade. But the mayor and um, and Sturge come in, and they're like, "Okay, the priest killed someone." And uh, and Bev just like draws them in with scripture. It's like this is God's will, and she slaps the mayor and gets him on board. And but yeah, yeah I think Bev twisting scripture. Even, and she probably knows more Bible in that show than almost anyone else besides Paul Hill, right? The priest. Um, she twists scripture and also just, um, you say she's very, very smart. And I think she's just a great example of what spiritual abuse can look like in the church and uh, narcissistic spiritual leadership. I'm thinking of uh, Charles DeGroat's book about when narcissism comes to church mm. and um it's a great book, by the way. Really helped uh, open a lot of things for me. Um, mm. But yeah, Bev King, uh, toxic spiritual leadership, spiritual abuse. Uh, not that they're always yelling at you per se, no. but how they twist things and yeah. very deceptive. They slowly re- bring you in, and it's only until, like after the fact that you realize what they did to you. Mm. Um, and you know, her character made me mad at Paul Hill for another reason because you're mad at Pruitt or Paul Hill. Because you're like, why would you bring uh, a vampire to your island? Like, what what are you doing here? You're mad at him for that. You're mad at him for lying. I'm actually more upset with that character for giving Bev Keen this prominent spiritual place in their community. Because huh. she only has this position of authority and influence because, you know, Monsignor Pruitt let her do that for years, right? Because she, um, you know, helped lead the service and all that. And so he kind of enabled Bev Keen to be Bev Keen to people on the islands, right? And um, so you're kind of mad at um, at Pruitt for doing that as well, for kind of enabling this sort of toxicity in his own church, his own parish. From my vantage point, it seemed like he didn't really know how bad she was. Like it's almost like she 
Yeah. Know, a little judgy, a little whatever, but you know, she's a faithful nun. She's a, a woman of God and everything. Like it's, it, it didn't seem like until he was kind of ended up being kind of brainwashed, whatever. Like it seemed like he didn't really know the depths of her toxicity. Would you, would that be fair? Or do you think yeah. that Although he, he knew her, he knew her her whole life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess maybe he had like a heart for her. Cause he, he probably knew her as like a little Bev running around. Right. right so, yeah. um, huh. but yeah, I think I was just like, Oh, how could he like give her a place of influence and um and after all the things she does and yeah um but it's gonna make me a little more mad at Pruitt um mm. lots of reasons as you say lots of reasons to be mad at him but he's also kind of admirable and shows a lot of heart and care for people especially for Riley and he's and is, like would that. you say he's a genuine he seems and I have to go back and watch it it's been a few months since I saw it for the second time and I didn't get through the whole whole thing again but. He just seemed very genuine. Even when he starts yeah. going dark, it's like he doesn't, he's now kind of demonically possessed or whatever and has this addiction to human blood. And, um, but almost felt bad for it. It's like he didn't want it. Like he doesn't like this about himself. He's tormented and like seems to genuinely want to care and care for people. Would that be accurate? Or do you think he's darker than that? Um, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, him starting that little private private AA group uh, with Riley. I think, right. He, Cause you know, Riley grew up as an ultra boy. Right. So I think he really cares about Riley. I mean, I think it was in episode one um, when Riley makes his first appearance um, back at the parish there. And when he's leaving, he says goodbye to Pruitt. I mean, Pruitt just kind of stares at him. Like, I, I think like he mm. really cares about Riley and yeah. knows what's happened to Riley and he's back. So I think, yeah, I sense a lot of care, shepherding care. Um, uh, just yeah, a good kind of a good pastor's heart for the most part in Pruitt. Um, I think I was called Pruitt self-deceived yeah. and even spiritually self-deceived, where he has uh, he has his own trauma, right? Because years and years and years ago, he um, what I don't think it was an affair because I don't think Mildred was married, but they you know they slept together, kept it a secret from the town because as a priest he should be celibate, mm-hmm. and that and that's why Mildred gives birth to Sarah, who becomes the island's doctor. But, you know, he lives his whole life where he can't be with his, the woman he loves. He's got to keep the secrets. Uh, and then he sees the woman he loves, you know, basically dying before his eyes. And, you know, she has Alzheimer's and things like that and just mm-hmm. kind of on her last legs. So that's a little bit of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. I think that leads to some of the very poor decisions that he makes. And he's own, he's desperate. He's not in his own right mental state as he's in the Holy Land and he encounters that vampire there in the in the tombs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think self-deception, uh, even mm-hmm. religious self-deception um, is a big theme in the show. Because um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think you're right. Pruitt is genuine. Yeah. He really believes and hopes that this is going to save the island. Yeah. We look at it, we're like, you crazy? Look at this guy. He looks like an evil vampire character, right? Yeah. But, uh, but he's deceived and kind of is hoping for the best of this. Thinking it's an angel. So, so. Did, I, I didn't cap, ca- catch that he brought the demon back. I thought that the demon just gave him like his life back and he went back home. And I didn't, did I miss <laughs> yeah, it? I that he was, so, that yeah. there was like a plan when he came back, he knew the demon was going to come back and do the so same he thing. He wanted to bring him back. I think in episode three, he has like this kind of ongoing monologue. He's like giving his confession before he, about the lie to the whole parish about you know oh. everything and he it's like it's like an episode long by the end of the episode you realize oh uh he is pruitt um right but i think like 
I forget what he says, where it's like either the at night the demon would kind of fly to wherever, like fly and travel to wherever he was at because he's traveling traveling back to Crockett Island. But the first episode, you see that um, that big uh, case or whatever, and you hear like a knock on the inside. So, that, so the 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 vampire is inside there. That's how he traveled to the island in that um, that big box, right? Oh, I missed that. So, yeah, so, yeah. So like the first, because the first couple episodes, like you don't know what it is, right? Oh, um, so he brought the vampire really, back. He's like, he's like flying around, right? So he did bring the vampire to Crockett Island to bring salvation, to bring yeah. healing, miracles, and all those things. Like he was very intentional in that. Um, so yeah, okay. big. So I think this is a great lesson for pastors like me. And so if I was in a group full of um, maybe D church folks, uh, this would be like a great part of the discussion where I would say. Hey, uh, who ever here has ever had a spiritual leader or a pastor or someone who messed up and they apologized to you? And probably no one will raise their hands because pastors are just not very good at that. And we're prideful and sinful. And and, uh, and I hope I could be able to maybe kind of do that blue like jazz, Donald Miller's uh, opposite confession and say, well, let me repent to you. Let me share some of my sins, even though I'm the pastor or the clergy. Because, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure people have been you know, because Riley loved, even though Riley lost his faith, he still has a heart and he loves Pruitt. He has all his memories of Monsignor Pruitt. And now he's kind of established yeah. a relationship with Paul Hill. And um, he's not spiritual, but he still has a respect for this, this pastor in his life. Um, but this pastor ends up hurting him in the end. And um, yeah. I think uh, to help people who are de-churched or just traumatized from the church, a little bit of healing can happen if spiritual leaders and pastors kind of led with repentance um, and apologizing for how even even with good intentions, we can cause abuse. We can cause harm, um, even knowingly or unknowingly, uh, mm. still reason enough to repent of those things. And I'm, none of the folks hear that from pastors. No, that's really helpful. And I feel like apart from being self-deceived and turning into a vampire and all that stuff, <laughs> aside from that. <laughs> Um, like Pru- Pruitt, he he just models such a healthy spiritual approach to somebody like Riley. Like if there ever is a spiritual figure who's going to win Riley back, yeah. his approach is so good. Like he, yeah. it's such a great model. Like when somebody's doubting, they're deconstructing, they have a problem with this, they have a problem with that. The way Pruitt like says yeah i get it man yeah i yeah i wrestle with that too and and then one time when he calls out his bs and is like swearing you know like you know just like hey let's just let's just cut the bs let's just get after this you know and and no you you do have you are strong or how are you i forget how he but he's so encouraging him and and validating Mm -hmm. him and just again it's genius how whoever the writer is i mean i don't know if it's, it's flanagan or whoever but just the way they portray him, it's like, man, this is the type of pastoral approach that de-church people need in the sense, not that it's necessarily going to win them back, but I think this is like, oh, I can get on board with this kind of religious leadership. Is that, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That, he nailed it. Like, so all the reasons you can bash Pruitt's on the show, but yeah, he does, as we said, he models really a healthy shepherd's heart and, real like as you as you would say raw dialogue right yeah. uh it's yeah those aa meetings are theology in the raw man like it's <laughs> uh they talk about everything you know and he gets very raw and he's not afraid to 
to drop a curse word, not afraid to, um, yeah, say, you know, get a, get a little rough with Riley, you know, especially later on um, in the series before Riley dies. But early on shows his heart for him. Um, and yeah, I, it's definitely a great model for, you know, you can call it long-term relational. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to say relational evangelism, per, you know, but something like that, right? Yeah. Where they're just, um, you know, I'm just going to pour into this relationship and see what the Lord does. Mm-hmm. And um, show honesty, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you have a rough conversation, the, this person will know that I still love them, even if it's kind of a, a tough conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does that very well. So I, I will watch those little AA sessions and things like that and be like, wow, it's, some good things to emulate. Um, I wouldn't bring a vampire to my church, but you know, <laughs> this stuff he's doing is pretty good. Um, like being a counselor basically. So what? Is, so how do I say it? I, um, I was surprised at, given how nuanced and complex the storyline was. I was a little shocked at how just explicit and predictable the the role of the demon was he even looks like like if a five year old was gonna draw a demon it would you know just wasn't aside from the demon being referred to as the angel I thought that was creative like yeah that's I kind of like that like that I mean like is wrong word but um what is the role of the demon in the larger picture is is it just as straightforward as it is it's like yeah this is I don't know what you know powers of darkness invading religious territory and being in religion being co-opted by darkness or, I mean, uh... yeah. Um, yeah, there's probably multiple themes overlapping there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess you could critique in terms of the aesthetics of the show. By the way, I thought the show was beautifully filmed. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the music's great. Like it kind of makes you like listen to old school hymns again. Cause of all the hymns they play with beautiful choral music in the background. Um, so if you love hymns, you'll love, uh, this, this, uh, this show. Um, yeah. Yeah. Beautifully shot, beautiful dialogue. So, yeah, Flanagan's just, yeah, I mean, that's not a typical horror flick, right? It's actually beautifully done, beautifully shot. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I guess if, if it's going to be a scary show, you got to make the vampire look scary. So, uh, yeah. but, you know, kind of dressing them up. And, um, you know, he's got a hat and a trench coat. And, yeah. you know, I think it's in episode four when uh, he finally attacks Riley and, um, he comes in first as he's Pruitt and he just kind of goes, shh, you know, like you see his little vampire finger coming to his lips and he goes, shh, you know, like that's just kind of creepy. Yeah, um, yeah. No, no, I think it works sort of. It got to yeah. make something scary. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of themes overlaps with this, the, the vampire character. So it's like, yeah, is it an angel or a demon? And that's second Corinthians 11 passage. And um, uh, basically, you know, basically from this beautiful little island parish, a cult starts up because of this vampire and lots of issues with self-deception. And, you know, you can be told many, many true things, but be deceived and end up believing a lot of wrong things that are destructive. And uh, I think a lot of folks that grew up in religious contests can identify with that. Um, That even religious experience, genuine religious experience can involve deception. We can be deceived from others. Mm -hmm. Um, We can have our own self-deception. Um, uh, just the other week, I was talking with a, a person in our town who swore that they had a vision that their loved one was healed. Their loved one had a um, terminal illness and um, someone prayed over them and prayed for healing. This person thought they had a vision from God that their loved one was healed and that the, the cancer left their body, all those things. 
Um, and then, you know, their loved one eventually passed away you know, just a few days later. Um, and they kind of came back down. Think they, they said to me, what was I thinking? How could I have been so like deceived on, on these things? It's like, well, that's, that happens a lot, especially mm-hmm. to religious folk. We get our own uh, religious experience can really deceive us and um, do a number on us. Uh, we can be gullible sometimes. We need to be. De- so I would tell um, a good lesson for Christians uh, from the show and this the role of the vampire here. We need to be very discerning and very critical, um, even of what sp- spiritual leaders tell us. You know, yeah. whether you do the Berean test and get your Bible up and look up every passage, or really just being discerning and critical of people's character and authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think another theme with this, uh, with the, with the vampires, what does it mean in a church or religious context to submit to someone who has a position of power and influence? Um, can someone with that power and influence have good intentions yet still abuse that power? The answer is yes, because mm-hmm. Paul Hill or Pruitt is the best example of that. I don't think that Bev has good intentions, but she probably believes what she believes very genuinely. Um, this is a great show that uh, don't just blindly follow spiritual authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, they can have good, great intentions for you, but still be abusive with their power. Um, and really, the vampire is kind of the artifact that helps that he drives the story forward. I mean, once Bev discovers what's going on and uh, it just kind of kicks in a high gear and becomes a, it, be, it becomes a cult at that point, right? Um, and I think a final uh, theme, kind of, this is this, I'm gonna be very doctrinal here, uh, but you just had N.T. Wright on your podcast. This will go along with what he, all that he said, but really it's an over-realized eschatology. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Hill thinks that heaven's gonna come to earth in its fullness right now. Um his loved one, Mildred, she's going to be fully healed. Um, he can restore his relationship with his daughter, Sarah. Uh, all the problems that have plagued this island from the oil spill and the just the drowning economy and people have left the island, it's going to all reverse. You know, I think in one of the earlier sermons in the series, maybe it's episode three, uh, he quotes, you know, uh, you know, Jesus saying, you know, to, to disciples, cast your nets over there. And he basically takes that pericope where jesus is you know calling his disciples through that um that through the through the through the vocation as fishermen and he applies that to like the economy of the island like you know god's gonna do miracles here too so he's already kind of twisting scripture sort of like a quasi health and wealth prosperity gospel mm-hmm. um but basically heaven's gonna come to earth right now mm-hmm. and we're gonna be like that first colony of this first heavenly colony here on earth we're special god's gonna do amazing things with us um and obviously uh pruitt falls for that mm-hmm. pretty quickly bev is all in on that <laughs> um but uh, gosh what destruction that leaves um in its wake right when people get to the end of that they're like oh mm-hmm. uh we went too far here uh heaven's not going to come to earth quite just yet yeah um do, do you think it's Flint, the point is to explain and unpack and critique religious cults or to show that religion is at the end of the day fundamentally cultish or is it i think it's the latter yeah i think it's the latter because he really is not just happens to not be religious anymore but probably has some issues with institutionalized religion yeah and um 
So you hit on earlier the the speech from Riley about what happens at death. Yeah. Um, I think it's episode four. Um, and then Aaron's speech about death, when she's dying, you hear her earlier monologue that she gave earlier, but now it's kind of playing as she's being uh, killed by the vampire. But she saves, she may have saved the entire world because she clips the wings of the vampire and it's pretty clear from the end that when the sun rises, the vampire gets uh, eviscerated by the sun. So really her sacrifice may have saved the rest of the world, uh, preventing that vampire from leaving the island. Um, but, uh, you know, R- uh, Riley has the speech about death. It's, as you say, it's a very nihilistic, naturalistic view of things where, you know, once he dies, his brain cells over the next five minutes will begin to die, but he'll be in a dream state. And I guess, We've kind of discovered this through science, like what happens to you physiologically when you die. And he says, and that's that. And then um, probably the most significant monologue of the entire series, which I, I did copy and paste on my Google Doc here. I won't read it. You probably <laughs> Google it yourself. For those listening, Google it and listen to what uh, or read what Aaron says. But she basically, it's a kind of like a pantheistic um, view where her energy gets bound up in the energy of the cosmos and that's what's what eternity will be. Um, so it's almost like, uh, and I'm probably going to say this, this Saturday when I'm officiating a funeral for a 42 year old man who died of hmm. stage four pancreatic cancer a couple weeks ago, I have to do a funeral, but I'm going to say this at the funeral is that you have some folks today that think that the end is going to be that we are recycled. And that's kind of what Riley thinks. We were just basically recycled and just kind of ceased to exist. Other folks kind of go with the reincarnation worldview, right? And that's kind of what Aaron's getting at, this pantheism. We're going to kind of be absorbed back into the cosmos and still live on in some way. Uh, But biblical eschatology says it's not we're being recycled. We're not being um, reincarnated. We're going to be resurrected. Yeah. Not that it's our bodies, but this whole world will be resurrected. As hmm. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure as uh, N.T. Wright and others have said on your podcast, just beautifully what that means for the new creation and all those things. Um, and so I guess what I would just um, say to some good friends who are still wrestling with their church background, wondering if the church offers anything good for them, I just would ask, you know what? Forget whether you think it, what's true or not true, but what's a better story to believe in? Like what, yeah. what what's a more hopeful story? that we're just going to be recycled or you'll be reincarnated and like, you know, live through the eighth grade again. I never want to do that, by the way. I hated the eighth grade. I want to be reincarnated and live through middle school again. Or this Bible uh, perspective of the, the, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection, the life of the world to come. Um, uh, I think the resurrection worldview is at least the most hopeful and the best story you can tell, whether you think it's true or not. Um, it's a better story than what either Riley tells or what Aaron tells in the end. Um, and so, um, I think that'd be a great discussion to have with some friends. If you are watching this and analyzing these monologues and, uh, what Aaron and what Riley say. Do you know, I'm curious, I don't know if this is a significant part of the show, but what, what happens to Aaron's child and what's the significance of that? You know, she's pregnant and then all of a sudden gone. Is that, I, I, I couldn't fit that into the, I, so the, you know, uh, Pruitt's mistress or whatever, you know, going from super old and dementia to super young yeah. and hot like that, that's, you know, the new life. Like there is this kind of new life, this heaven on earth, like that made sense. But the disappearance of the child in the womb, I couldn't figure that out. 
Yeah, that's just. I mean, I, I, what I would take with that, I think it's in episode three or four when that happens. Um, it's kind of halfway through the series, and I think it's it's just showing the consequences for Pruitt's decision. Um, what he thinks is going to bring, you know, health and life and blessing oh. and miracles. Now it's bringing like uh, this is the opposite of a miracle. It's, it's bringing death. Basically, okay. you've, you've lost a life in the womb. And actually, one thought I had. I don't, I don't know if this was Flanagan's um, purpose in putting this uh, story into the plot there, but I wonder, um, as our culture looks at the church and says, okay, the church says that they're pro-life, but really, hmm. is the church really pro-life? Maybe they're just anti-abortion, but not really pro-life. Hmm. Um, they're really pro-life. They would be more than just anti-abortion. They would be um, pro, you know, better health care for young women. Um, they would um, provide for children born in, you know, mm-hmm. horrible circumstances. We would just be more what, you know, my, my friend Scott Sauls calls womb to tomb yeah. pro-life Christians. Right. So I wonder, um, so I don't, I don't know if Flanagan was thinking of this, but my takeaway from that watching it a second time was what if this is like a little bit of a critique for the church that the only thing the church really cares about is like the life in the womb, hmm. but not everything else that happens um, to that life afterwards. Um, That's interesting. I know like, I've had a lot of non-Christian friends tell me, oh, you're anti-abortion, but you're not really pro-life because you just care about the womb stuff. But what about after the womb? Um, so, okay. So if you take, let me, if you take the whole package together, then, then <laughs> I had it all in my mind. So you think it is kind of signaling to this abortion theme. I mean, it's a life in the womb that's no more. So it's almost like, this complex religious thing going on, which has a blend of authenticity, um, self-deception, blatant evil, spiritual misuse of spiritual power, um, has a, almost a result of going against the very thing we say we're standing for. Like we know we 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 love life in the womb, but it's almost yeah. like, well, is religion really fostering life in the womb? Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I don't know if Flanagan's going that direction. But I think it'd be a great like discussion topic to have with some yeah. friends that are watching this with you. Because um, again, another area for the church to repent, right? For the church to show confession and repentance in that area. Um, I read a stat somewhere a while ago. I, I forget the exact stat. I'm gonna I'm gonna ballpark it. I'm gonna say <laughs> 25, 30 percent. Um, it's somewhere within that range. It's a decent percentage of women who get abortions are part of a very conservative religious environment. It may may even be like 25% are Baptist women Mm -hmm. and the abortion is in secret because there would be so much shame that they had sex outside of marriage that they Mm. couldn't dare tell the very unforgiving community of what happened. So the result is abortion. So that when Christians say they stand for abortion, it's just, as I do, um, we have to look at the complexity of the environments that nurture and perhaps even encourage unintentionally, maybe uh, abortion. Like can religion be playing a role in, um, in nudging people toward abortion? Like that's a discussion I don't see happening um, as much as it probably should. Yeah. I'm hopeful that the church can um, have these more these discussions, uh, especially after, um, I think it was Mark Yarhouse's book, Costly Obedience, where it was was a statistic that um, on average, was it seven years between the moments a a, a young LGBT person is aware that they're different, uh, aware that they're gay or whatever, 
seven years between that moment and the next time, and then when they confess, they come out and tell someone like they, they, they trust, like an adult or parent, pastor, teacher. I think it's seven years hmm. as the average. So it's like seven years of loneliness and shame and yeah. their own thoughts, perhaps even self-harming thoughts to themselves. And it's like, all right, the church needs to do something better to foster these discussions and make sure that we're a safe haven and a safe place for any kind of person, any kind yeah. of sinner, just to say, this is what I'm struggling with, and we can be a loving family for them. Um, yeah. But yeah, but so I, I never, I never, I I've not heard that statistic that you gave, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's true and um, that the church needs to do better in that area as well. And yeah, I, I think don't, I obviously don't... Pure, pure purity culture stuff, yeah. Uh, discussion, that has an effect on it too. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I often say the, that, that um, I think you're right about the seven years statistic. There's another with the LGBT population, you know, 83% were raised in the Christian church, 51% ended up leaving the church. Um, but only 3% said they left primarily for the church's teaching on a, a traditional view of marriage and same sex yeah. relationships. And the reasons for leaving are all largely relational um, and some pretty ter- terrible things. And what I often say is, you know, Christians often look at the, the quote unquote, you know, air quotes, um, the, the loud and proud, angry gay activist who hates Christianity. And I said, in all, in most cases, that loud and proud activist was once sitting in our pews, silent and scared mm-hmm. as a teenager, scared to yeah. death that somebody in the church would find out that this is what they're going through. Because in most contexts that would lead to a lot of shame and ostracism and sometimes even abuse and so on. Um, and then, that, yeah, it's the complexity. And this is what I love about men trying to bring it back, you know. Um, yeah, what we're saying about abortion and LGBT stuff, sometimes religion is unintentionally, unintentionally, you know, um, playing a role in creating the very thing we say we're against or or whatever. Um, yeah. By the way, I don't know if you know, I know it's only the second viewing. I don't know why I didn't see it the first time, but I think in the second episode, um, so Sarah Gunning, the doctor, who's also the daughter, you find out later, of Pruitt. Um, so I didn't know that she apparently is a lesbian or she was, she, uh, she, yeah. had, she had a, she was on a second date with a woman. Um, yeah. On the main so, end, Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see that um, <laughs> until the second viewing. So I'm like, okay, so there's that issue. What if, um, so, cause she's obviously, she doesn't go to church. Um, she doesn't attend mass. Uh, until her mom gets healed and then she starts attending again. So I wonder what the backstory is there hmm. um, with her, probably her struggle with her sexual orientation, what the church thinks, and um, maybe what her, her mom thought at one point. So hmm. I'd love to know that backstory. Um, if that had anything to do with her yeah. uh, withdrawing from the church community. Um, I, you know, that's an interesting point. I'm glad that they didn't make that super explicit because to me, that would be a little bit like low, like a little bit easy, you know, Oh, this religious, whatever hates gay people or just that narrative. It's like, it's too, I don't know, too predictable. I'm glad that they left that a little bit open-ended. She's not in church. You know, you see her on a date with her girlfriend on the mainland and then, it just kind of leaves it at that. Like there's probably several reasons why all these people in the Island, at least initially, you know, don't go to church. The one church in town has like five people. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, several episodes later, it's a packed house because of the revival happening, the demonic revival. <laughs> what, what do you, let, let's, let's, um, for the last 10 minutes or so, um, let, let's move on to kind of the contemporary 
uh, discussion about deconstruction. I know we didn't plan on doing this, but I mean, it's kind of lingering behind yeah. a lot of the stuff we're talking about. You know, you're a pastor in a de-churched environment. There is a very, you know, co- I guess controversial, maybe that's not the best term, um, conversation about deconstruction, whether that's good or bad, what are we deconstructing from, um, how are deconstructors reconstructing and so on and so forth. Have you, have you thought through this conversation that's, that's been going on? Yeah. And, um, if I were to give any little good resource article on, I think a healthy way for Christians to think about deconstruction, um, my old seminary professor, uh, Michael Kruger, um, he's written a lot of books on the canon of scripture and he's a new Testament scholar. Um, He's the president at RTS Charlotte down uh, down in Charlotte, and so he wrote a blog on his on his blog. Um, it's at michaeljkruger.com. Things from January sixth of this year. It's uh, is deconstruction the same as deconvert as deconversion? And basically, he says not necessarily. Just because you're deconstructing doesn't mean you're deconverting per se. Um, you guys, well, what do you keep deconstructing? And he basically gives a sympathetic view, like you know what, there may be some good reasons for certain folks group in the church to deconstruct certain things. And I think he really has a posture of, we need to be good listeners. We need to have humility. Um, honestly, when Christian Twitter is debating, Hey, should we be using this word deconstruction? I'm just like, you know what, what word are our neighbors and friends using when we have coffee with them? Let's just, yeah. let's not need like a terminology debate. I'm sure, you know, with revoice, it's like, you get like a terminology war. Right. And it's just like, you know what? I just don't think our neighbors that are, for some reason, want to have coffee with us. Uh, I don't think they're. I don't think they're into our little terminology warfare, right? That Christian Twitter gets all up in arms in. And so, um, I just think. Um, I just think the church needs to be really good listeners um, uh, with our neighbors and friends and loved ones who um, they may use that word deconstruction. Maybe they're not, but I think the one um, my favorite little. I don't want to call it evangelistic or apologetics tool, but my favorite. Um, my favorite things I've learned from Tim Keller um, about talking to people who are not followers of Jesus, but maybe grew up in the church and have some trauma and baggage there. When someone is describing, you know, hey, this is what I learned in my church growing up. This is, this is what my pastor taught me. Let's say they give you a view of the gospel or of Jesus um, that is either not orthodox or not the same as the gentle and lowly Jesus that we read about and know in scripture. Uh, Keller says that what he'll say to them is, you know what? I'm glad you don't believe in that Jesus. I don't believe in that Jesus either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he says that that can really take the conversation in a very healthy direction. I remember a couple years ago, right beginning of the pandemic or maybe right before talking to a woman going through divorce. She grew up in a very Baptist uh, church. She went to Oklahoma Baptist university. Um, she um, just, yeah, grew up in some more Baptistic, maybe legalistic church backgrounds. And, um, but she, uh, she's walked away from the church a little bit. Um, uh, uh, she's going through a divorce and she told me, she's like, you know what, Daniel, the problem I have with the Bible and with Jesus is that this whole notion that, God the Father was pissed off at us. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus had to come and like die for us so that God's no longer mad at us. Uh, she's <laughs> like, how is that good news? And um, I got nice. really emotional with her. I said, you know what? I'm sorry that that's what you were taught in a church growing up. Like, I'm sorry that someone taught you that because the Bible says that God so loved the world 
um, in order that he might give us his only son, right? Mm. So like it was the father's love that sent the son, not the father being pissed off yeah. before he sent the son. And um, that's just an example of how we just need to be really good conversation partners, admit where the church has gotten it wrong, mm-hmm. um, you know, hold up the the biblical Jesus, the gentle and lowly Jesus. You can tell I love that book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Um, mm-hmm. I just love that book. So, um, yeah, we really need to do a lot of good work. I think let's take a lot of coffee conversations or a lot of conversations at the pub, um, a lot of a lot of patience and just uh, long-term relationships to um, help people reconstruct. If they need to deconstruct an unbiblical view of Jesus that they were given in the church growing up, we need to be their helpers to come alongside and say, can I have permission to share with you who the biblical Jesus really is? Um, yeah, that's good. But I think a lot, of hum- a lot of humility, a lot of listening, not correcting terminology at every single point. We're, we do that so much on like mm-hmm. Christian Twitter. It's annoying. We seem to not do that anymore. So I, so anyway. I haven't really followed the conversation. Well, I know there's been articles written back and forth and I, I kind of know some of the people writing them. So I, I don't know what is the debate really. Like I wouldn't be able to articulate that. Um, it doesn't, to me, it just seems what you're saying seems like a no brainer. Someone says, I am deconstructing. I have deconstructed. My next question is from what? Yeah. From what? We all, I mean, yeah. Is it a, so what like, what, what are you shedding? Like, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Like, <laughs> deconstruction? Yeah. Is it a total deconstruction? Or are you just like, deconstructing parts he's kind of reforming your your beliefs like what mm-hmm. exactly do you mean um yeah just ask follow-up questions right that's what it means to be a loving neighbor yeah. just and have dialogue hopefully and, i think we yeah. i think any sound christian should be able to admit that there are cultural artifacts embedded within american christianity some of which are neutral some of which are bad and some of which might be good like it's Let's sort that out. Like that's just within any religion, it's going to be entangled with its cultural expression. And some of that needs to be shedded and American Christian. I I would be on the side of, I think there's a lot, a lot of how we think about our faith, religion, whatever that is been seriously affected by our culture. Again, it doesn't mean it's all bad. It just means we need to examine the parts that have been intertwined with our faith and see, is this, does this resonate with Christianity or does it conflict with it? And so I don't. Yeah. And I, we have a moral mandate to deconstruct, if we want to use that term, uh, from certain things that don't need to be there. So I, I just I don't know. Am I, what am I missing? Like, what are um, the people that are not that are critical of yeah. people deconstructing? Like, what? Um, I don't know. I think it's two things. I think we just again we get all bent out of shape with the wrong verbiage or okay. whatever, um, which I think is kind of shallow. <laughs> my opinion, but. Uh, uh, I think the other thing is that I think when our idol, when our own idols get attacked, we can get angry. Um, okay. I think we get angry when we feel our own idols are being attacked. So um, even though I agree with every conclusion in the book, uh, when I read um, the Jesus and John Wayne book this yeah. year, um, a lot resonated, a lot of it I agreed with. And um, one part in Midnight Mass that kind of ties into what she says in the book with like, kind of the militarization of the church and like military language, like we're the army of God. So I think it's in episode five where it's on the good, it's it's the good Friday service that Pruitt's leading. And that's when he finally gets militaristic and says, we are the army of God and Mm. our kingdom, no flags, no boundaries. And we're starting now. And so 
it's like his first militaristic um, sort of sermon. And that's when Mildred, his old love interest, who's now healthy and in church, she her demeanor changes and she walks out and she tells Sarah, that's not the man that I knew. This is not the church that I knew. And she just walks out in anger because after that militaristic sermon. Wow. Um, I didn't get And so that. Yeah. I thought that, and, and I'm pretty sure a lot of folks who grew up in the church have walked away heard maybe it was on maybe it was on fourth of july or memorial day or some patriotic holiday some um you know we are the lord's army and uh and, th- and some of that soldier language is in the bible it's not predominant but it's there but right. it becomes the overarching theme by which you describe the whole christian life and i think it's i think it's been very unhelpful and um pretty traumatizing for a lot of folks um yeah, yeah. So just seeing that um uh, made me think of the jesus and john wayne book a little bit like yeah that's you know, um, I'll give everything she writes in the book, but I think there's a lot there that, you know, contemporary evangelical pastors like me need to reckon with and repent of and, yeah. and all those things. And I don't, even, even people that do actually deconstruct their faith, I'm thinking, you know, public people like a Joshua Harris or somebody like even yeah, that, yeah. like my response is curiosity. Like, wow, what what's like, even there, I want to know, like what, when you say I'm, I no longer believe, like what, I want to understand what that even means because again, there might be a Jesus you're rejecting that I reject too. Um, if it is genuinely rejecting the the actual Jesus of the Gospels, then man, that's sad. You know, like I find Jesus to be a super compelling figure. What is it about him that you don't find compelling anymore? Like to to me, there still is a spark of curiosity, not judgment, maybe a bit of sadness, um, but. I don't. It, could it be this? That the, and I, I'm, I'm. My question has to do again with people that are concerned and and not. Ex, you know, they are concerned about the kind of maybe the glorification of deconstruction, where it has become almost like a yeah. a, a trendy thing. You know, and I, I could I could see that 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 could be problematic, mm-hmm. where it becomes yeah. a, you know almost like how some mental health conditions are almost becoming like celebrated identities. You know, if if you don't have a mental health issue, yeah. it's almost like I don't know. In some circles, it's like you're not on the end or whatever. Um, so, may, so maybe it can be that. Maybe, maybe an overly glorification yeah. of of deconstruction mm-hmm. is that maybe some of the concern? Oh yeah. I mean, gosh, we're all we're all idol makers. I mean, John Calvin <laughs> said that our, our hearts are idol factories, right? That's, that's what we do best. We're yeah. We're good at worshiping these self made idols. So anything good in this world we can make into an idol so i'm sure that's I'm, that's definitely true um mm-hmm. but yeah you know with someone like joshua harris when i listened to the episode on the rise and fall of mars hill podcast yeah. where they just interviewed him which i thought was the, one of the best episodes of that whole podcast series i think it's my favorite episode um but you know when he basically talked about when he discovered wait um Basically, the Bible doesn't command Christians that they have to homeschool their children because he grew up in the homeschooling mm. world, right? Like yeah. his his parents, he was like their his parents were like a big part of that homeschooling world, and um and I've seen that like, we homeschool one of our kids, um, and so I'm in the homeschooling world a little bit, but I see, I see a very unhealthy mentality mm-hmm. where I you know just an unhealthy way that they twist scripture like you see in midnight mass where you know Deuteronomy 6 you know when your children rise up and walk by the way and they lie down teach them the word of the lord and they take that and say okay that means they can't go to school they have to be homeschooled and, really? um, do people do that and yeah and um that's a that's a proof text that gets used and as a pastor i just think oh, wait if, 
if it's a biblical imperative, you must homeschool your children. What do I tell the single mom working two jobs? She's also got to homeschool her kids. You know, she's uh, sitting by sitting in the public school. And um, I think when certain, not it's not really the parents, but when the students grow up and they're like, wait, my mom or my dad, they homeschooled me because they thought it was a biblical command from God. But maybe it was not a good experience from them. Maybe yeah. it was they had some harmful things happen, and they just kind of fuse that little fundamentalism about schooling and whatever um, with their religious upbringing as a Christian, and they toss the whole thing away. And I, I saw a little bit of that um, in the Harris interview, plus the whole stuff with Sovereign Grace and yeah. um, you yeah. know the abuse cover up, and they, that did the most, I think, damage on him, which I think with with anyone who would go through that, right? Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, that, that was very yeah. telling that interview with, with Harris. Um, your heart kind of breaks for the guy. So yeah, I ha- I had him on this podcast a few years ago. It was between it was before he renounced his faith, but after he renounced um, his book, uh, where he told the publisher to take it off the shelves and everything. That yeah. he stated goodbye. So it's kind of he was on this trajectory, yeah. um, and even the, you know, I being raised in a conservative context like i've seen people when certain conservative values or doctrines are associated with christianity like a young earth theology or um a literal interpretation of everything in the bible you know jonah must be literal adam must be literal and and maybe they are um but when they're saying if if you depart from this kind of reading of the Bible, you know, ancient biblical writers must have a modern cosmology. They believed in a round earth. They believed in a heliocentric, you know, all these things. It's like, maybe, probably not, but you know, but that's not, don't equate that with Christianity. So that if all of a sudden you come to the conclusion that, yeah, I wonder if there's more metaphors in Genesis one to 11, people say, well, you're not a Christian anymore, but that, that, that overly, overly conservative environment. And by overly conservative, I mean, in like, you're, you're equating a certain conservative interpretation with the essence of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a, I mean, yeah. and, and that brand of Christianity yeah, I mean, for pe- for yeah. people that are nervous about this deconstruction movement, it's like, well, we, ha- we have to have the humility to ask what role have we played in, in that journey? Like, have we yeah. created a kind of Christianity that is kind of fostering that kind of, you know, byproduct yeah politics is the big one politics. i still remember my church growing up right before the election they would hand out those little christian voter guide things to all of us like before that tuesday you know i remember a lot of those things in my church growing up i thought i had a really good church upbringing mm-hmm. didn't traumatize me but yeah but now i see like some of those unhealthy things that i'm sure could affect someone negatively mm-hmm. um so yeah um i think i think i think unbelievers or people are they're deconstructing they need um, some healthy, gospel-minded Christians to enter into those deconstruction conversations mm-hmm. and be a healthy, uh, safe dialogue partner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't think we should, we should not run away. We should forge into that and have more cups of coffee with folks and have those conversations. Yeah. Well, Daniel, you seem like a pretty cool pastor. Uh, glad that you're out there in that uh, <laughs> difficult terrain. So thanks for the conversation, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, you've oh, given us a lot thank of... You. Yeah, a lot of food for thought. And if um, I hope for those of you who haven't watched Midnight Mass, who maybe now want to, <laughs> I would say still do it. We gave away some spoilers, but honestly, I, I, if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who hasn't seen it yet, the stuff we're talking about, I don't. It, it, it's like 
they, they might have a little bit of a running start now, but um, I, I think it would still be a very engaging show to watch. But I'm not recommending it. You should it. do a watch party at <laughs> next week. You should do a watch party. The after party should be y'all watching Midnight Mass after yeah. you know everyone's done speaking at the, yeah, yeah. the conference. So, there are yeah. a few Just disturbing <laughs> graphic scenes. I wouldn't say. I, not just violent, more just dark, but there's not, they don't dominate the show. There's a few scenes that, um, yeah. one yeah. guy is, is exploded by the sun. Not a big deal, but you know, yeah. it's all good. So. Licking up a blood coming out of the guy's head. I mean, yeah, but <laughs> other than that, it's <laughs> get over yourselves. <laughs> it's practically Disney, <laughs> but oh, okay. Man, okay. Some of the most dangerous <laughs> films, this is what my friend Cutter Calloway is drawing attention to, some of the most dangerous films to ever watch, do not let your kids go near, are Disney films that have a such a warped, subtle view of romance and love, and they're dangerous because, oh, like, these are safe. And so we just freely let our kids absorb these secular views of romance and love and marriage that are so lodged in the heart of millions of Christian kids in America that it becomes so destructive when they do some of them fall in love and maybe get married. And these romance, secular romantic narratives are so lodged in their soul because we, they're not explicitly evil in the sense that we often say that. So we just let it just seep down deep into our spiritual bones that's the most dangerous thing to do. So I'll let people smoke on that for a little bit. When I do pre-pronouncing, I'd tell couples, I'm like, forget every Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan film you've ever watched. <laughs> That's not how romance works. So yeah. so I got, we got to deconstruct people on their Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks movie stuff. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have much more to say about that, but I got to let you go. I'm sure you have people to go marry and bury and do whatever pastors do. My, uh, my, uh, my kids just got home. So it's going to become World War III in a second. So okay. Anyway. All right. Hey, great talking to you, bro. All right. Thanks, Preston. Appreciate it. See you.